Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Kinesis News podcast. With me today is Harris Rafiq, who is the CEO and executive board member of Quilliam. He's also a trustee of the Franco-British Council and an advisor to Europol. Welcome, Harris. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Um, so I always start these things by, by just asking people to uh, introduce themselves and tell us a bit about how they got to where they are today. So why don't you just start by doing that? Sure. Uh, I'm Harris Rafiq. As you said, I'm the CEO of Quilliam. Uh, I've been with Quilliam now for about uh, just coming up to three years uh, and became its managing director about two and a half years ago. Uh, prior to that, if you, if you look at my journey, which is quite interesting, I, I was born in the UK. I uh, am 51 years of age. My father was here in 1953. Uh, my uncle's in the 20s. Uh, and I was born, as I said, and I sort of lived my life as a very small um, uh, percentage uh, uh, or uh, the, very sp- uh, the town where I lived and the school I went to, uh, we were only 5% of the population, people of Asian or Pakistani or Indian background. Uh, and what was really interesting is that in those days, we didn't have faith-based identity politics. Uh, nobody measured me by my faith. Nobody, nobody categorized me by my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they... Um, liked me and they wanted to consider my ethnic background, uh, it was Asian or Pakistani. If they didn't like me, it was the P word mm-hmm. uh, in, in a derogatory. But nobody actually said, oh, you're a Muslim. No, no one measured me by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sort of grew up uh, doing all the things, uh, integrating into society as most people my age did in those days. Uh, you know, I was a punk rocker, and then I was uh, uh, a new romantic. Followed the uh, followed the uh, the music um, fads. Uh, I joined CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, when I was at university. I was a bit of a sort of a uh, you know uh, almost I would say a far lefty, and then sort of left university, went into the commercial sector, and grew up. And my politics became a lot more central. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the commercial sector, and I was on the board of a number of um, I have been on the board of a number of blue chip organisations. And about, uh, I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago, my daughter came home one day and she said, Daddy, I don't want to be a Muslim. Oh. And I said, why? And she said, because Muslims are always angry and they're always killing people. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to kill anybody. I'm only seven years old. <laughs> uh, and I said, show me where, where are you getting these messages from? And she showed me on the TV and there were some guys who happened to be from the Taliban. And they looked very angry, uh, as if they wanted to kill people, and they were burning effigies of uh, George Bush and Tony Blair. And this started a a thought process in my own mind at the time, because here was a young girl, she was seven years of her age, um, living in a Muslim household, so mummy and daddy, you know, practicing um, whenever we felt pious, you know, we used to fast during Ramadan, pray our prayers when we we, uh, were particularly particularly feeling pious. she didn't know anything else about the faith or geopolitics, and she was associating the, my faith, Islam, with being angry and violent, and she didn't want to be angry or violent. And so I started thinking, well, really, is this Islam? Is this really my faith? Is this what it's all about? So, so I, I was quite fortunate. I took a backpack and traveled around the world, and ended up in some in Malaysia, Indonesia, the Middle East, Pakistan, uh, US, all all over the world and sort of came back full circle, realizing that the faith that my parents brought, uh, my father brought to the UK in 1953, where there was no dichotomy between being British and Muslim or Pakistani and Muslim or Indian and Muslim, um, and that the faith really is a spiritual relationship that the individual has between themselves and God, is the faith that the majority of people around the world practice. But there was something going on. There are people 
and have been people over the last few decades that have been politicizing that faith um, spreading the concepts of the utopian Islamist caliphate mm -hmm. without being challenged. And this was impacting our youngsters. So I left what I was doing and got involved uh, in sort of this type of work. Uh, ended up being on the government task force after 7-7, mm -hmm. uh, being an advisor to prime ministers uh, and to secretaries of state. Uh, and currently I still sit on the Prime Minister's uh, Task Force, which is a working group on called the Community Engagement Forum that looks at uh, countering extremism from a civil society perspective. So that's sort of how I got into it and sort of some of the work that, uh, that I personally am doing uh, at the moment. Okay, that's great. And just to pick up on a couple of things you said there, um, one of the narratives that's kind of come out I guess fairly recently is is the fact that um, Islam as a religion is kind of uniquely tied to politics, even mm. compared with other religions. Do you would you say that's untrue then, or do you think it has become true recent more recently? I, I think I think Islam as a faith uh, is something that first of all there's no one Islam. No. Uh, there are so many different versions of Islam and so many interpretations of Islam. And you know, for the people that say Islam is a religion of peace. I would say they're wrong. For people that say Islam is a religion of war, I would say they're wrong as well. Islam is neither a religion of peace nor a religion of war, but it can be either or both or something in the middle. And it totally depends on the individual interpretations. What we've seen, certainly more so it's at the 1930s onwards, and certainly in the UK and the West, post the Salman Rushdie affair, is an infusion of Islamist politics. And, and we use the word Islamism, and we're very, very clear about this. Um, you know, Islam is a religion. It's totally different to Islamism, which is a political ideology. Just as we've got a difference between uh, social and socialism, social is the way that we might interact, and socialism is a distinct political ideology that is happens to be left of center. Mm -hmm. Islam is a religion. It's practiced by different people. Islamism is a um, a version of that faith, a politicized version of that faith that wants two things. The first thing is to uh, set up a utopian Islamist state and enforce one particular version of Sharia, which has never been done before, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, uh, to spread that around the world. And this phenomenon is a contemporary Phenomenon. It's something that hasn't been around sort of from the from the early days of Islam. It's new. Uh, it's been around in sort of small pockets and sort of evolved. But certainly the Muslim Brotherhood and the Jamaat Islamiyah, who are sort of the the grandparents of modern day Islamism, um, have sort of really penetrated and infiltrated Muslim communities uh, over the last few decades, and certainly in the West from the 70s and 80s onwards. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, people who say that Islam is particularly um, linked to politics, I would say it's no, no more or no less linked to politics than any other faith can be, and it's purely dependent upon the individual. I don't need a faith, my faith, to tell me what's right or wrong, either from a political perspective or from a civil society perspective. My faith, and for many Muslims, is how we interact with God and become better human beings. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very interesting. You said it had never been done before, so... Um, how do you react if people ask you about sort of the the previous uh, Islamic caliphates? Was that the Ottoman? Not, the Ottoman, yeah, well, no, the Ottoman. not just the Ottoman, the the Abbasid, the yeah, the yeah. Spanish caliphates, so all of those. Are they are they fundamentally different to what's being tried to to, to be done now? Then 
Absolutely. If you look at those those caliphates, the, what they uh, never did was enforce one particular version of fiqh, which is jurisprudence derived from Sharia. Sharia, by the way, doesn't mean law. Sharia means different things to different people, but on the whole, it, it's a personal code. And from the personal code of, of do's and don't do's for the individual, people derive, juris, derive what's called fiqh, which is jurisprudence. And as a university, which is, um, I, I suppose, the, uh, the largest and the most established seats of um, uh, Muslim, especially Sunni jurisprudence, uh, learning, has recognized over 400 legitimate versions of jurisprudence. Mm. <laughs> uh, and if we look at previous um, caliphates, uh, uh, states, if you like, um, they've never imposed one particular version of jurisprudence across the whole of their lands. Imam Malik, who's one, uh, within the Sunni traditions, there are four uh, main schools of jurisprudence. And even amongst those four main schools of jurisprudence, they have differences. Um, but Imam Malik, who was one of, one of the four, was asked by a ruler to come along to uh, the court and to help make his version of jurisprudence the state law across all the lands. And he refused. And he refused on the basis that, first of all, he could be wrong. And secondly, different people, there's no right to impose his version as opposed to the versions before him or anybody else's interpretations on the land's estate law. And if you look at the Ottomans especially, they did a number of things which I think are very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. They got rid of the concept, which I don't agree with, by the way, the dimmi concept. I don't agree with that. They got rid of the dimmi concept where uh, people who were non-Muslims in, in their lands um, had paid a tax and then they didn't have to go into the army and they got protection, all the rest of it. Um, they got rid of that. Uh, in the Tanzimat reforms, the Ottomans were the first, I guess, from my recollection, the first state to decriminalize homosexuality, which was in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. uh, and they suspended and got rid of the Hadood laws, which involved uh, chopping off hands for, for theft, etc. So Islam has evolved, uh, but it's recently, and I would say since the Salafist, from a theological perspective, came into uh, had got oil money, petrol, petrodollars, mm. merged with the political Islamist ideology. And by the way, Islamism, if you look at it, was imported. Uh, the concept of Islamism, not the religious aspects, but the political concepts were imported from Europe. Essentially, what, what one of the main ideologues of modern-day Islamism was a guy called Said Qutb. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he took fascism and communism, which was, you know, post the the vacuum of the um, the age of empires when the Ottoman Empire and the British Empire collapsed. There was a vacuum in Europe. Uh, we had fascism and communism, which spread, uh, managed to sort of fill that vacuum. In the Middle East, we had Baathism and Islamism and Pan-Arabism and a number of other things. Mm -hmm. But what Qutb did was he took the ideas, uh, a lot of the ideas of fascism and communism from Europe, imported them into the Middle East. So, for example, uh, anti-Semitism and a whole number of other things. And then what he did was he merged them with a Salafist version of Islam, which needed an enemy to fight. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he said instead of doing uh, the things that communists and fascists want and the elements of that, instead of doing it for the land, or for the people rather, or for the nation, do it for God. And this is a new phenomenon mixing the politics of fascism, communism with the Salafist theology. And that's where we've seen the birth of the modern day Islamism that's come from the Middle East. 
Okay. No, I, that's I mean, I've asked that question to a lot of people. Uh, you know, why has there been a, a recent rise in sort of extremism and extremist mm. ideology? And I think that that's probably as well explained as I've had it explained to me. So thank you. No, my play. And, and and the other thing I would say is that, you know, ordinary Muslims. Um, Living in in the West, especially we we you know I I'm the son of an immigrant, mm -hmm. and uh, who came to this country, and he worked hard. He came here with one pound in his pocket, and he died a millionaire. He worked very very hard. You know, he used to do thirty six hour shifts. I remember when he was a labourer when he first came over, and he instilled those kind of values into me, into my and brothers and sisters, and we tried to instill those into our children. But we got on with our lives. We, you know, did everything that normal people did. You know, the answer to whether I was able to pay my mortgage at the end of the month was not Israel and Palestine. The answer to whether my son was doing well at school was not Islamophobia or, or the perception of Islamophobia. And I want to talk a little bit about the word Islamophobia in a minute, because yeah. um, I don't like that word. No, uh, so, 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 so we were getting on with our lives, but we had a lot of um, Islamists who gained asylum in the West uh, rightly so, I think, because they were going to be hung and killed, etc., for being Islamist in their countries. Uh, and, and I think we have a duty to uphold human rights. Uh, and they came over to the UK and the US, some, uh, and I could name names, but I won't, because I don't think it's fair to do so. But they came to the US and to the UK, and they were very, they were intelligent, they were well motivated, they had concepts of how to build grassroots organizations, they had money coming in from the Middle East, and they pumped out a lot of propaganda, did a lot of grassroots activities, did a whole range of things that tried to build this concept of the utopian Islamist caliphate as being the main driver of Muslim identities and to try and say to Muslims that nobody else wants you, nobody else really cares about you, come and join the Global Muslim Ummah Gang. Mm -hmm. And by the way, to be part of the Global Muslim Ummah Gang, you have to believe in Islamism. And we didn't challenge it. The overwhelming majority of Muslims in civil society, non-Muslims as well, because I don't believe you have to be a Muslim to challenge Islamism, just like you don't have to be um, white to challenge apartheid, you don't have to be straight to challenge homophobia, mm -hmm. you don't have to be Muslim to challenge Islamism on a values-based uh, uh, um, process, on a values-based uh, uh, approach. So I think that we were very, very quiet, we were very silent, and we didn't know what was going on. And, you know, I think that by the time we woke up, uh, they were already decades ahead of us. Yeah, had a head start. <laughs> Um, so do you want to talk quickly about Islamophobia before we move on? Yeah, 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 I, 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 absolutely. I, I, you know, I, 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 it's very interesting. I, I gave evidence to the EU um, about a year and a half ago, and there was somebody who was on the panel with me who was um, from an Islamist organization, and he was invited by the EU, mm -hmm. and they wanted to talk about Islamophobia. And I actually, at the end of it, got him to agree with my uh, interpret my, my, my interpretation, publicly, which I thought was, was very good. Um, I don't like the word Islamophobia, and we don't use it. For me, Islam is a set of values, it's a set of ideas. Uh, it's something that I choose to accept. I, as an individual, choose to accept the ideas uh, coming from my particular interpretation of Islam. I can reject them if I want. I don't have to be a Muslim. Um, in a liberal secular democracy, no idea, no set of ideas should be beyond scrutiny and sometimes critique. But no individual 
should be beyond dignity. So instead of Islamophobia, I prefer, and we quilliam use the word anti-Muslim bigotry or anti-Muslim hatred, which is real, which is focused on an individual. The word Islamophobia has often been used by Islamist organizations to stifle critical inquiry and critique of the ideas and the interpretations that they wish to purvey. And I think that if we use anti-Muslim hatred and anti-Muslim bigotry, we're actually separating from the Islamists and focusing on the individual, which is absolutely the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, so you talked about this uh, global Muslim Umar gang that you mm. know, pushes this narrative of nobody wants you, come join our, our global Muslim caliphate, whatever. Mm. Do you think that their task is made easier then by things like Donald Trump's ban on travel from... <laughs> Yeah, from from certain countries that are majority Muslim. Yeah, I, I think I, I'll talk about whether I think the ban works or not in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I, I just want to talk. Just answer your question first of all. F foreign policies and policies of state mm -hmm. are not something that directly cause somebody to become a jihadist. If we look at the radical, I mean, what has what has my UK's foreign policy or the US foreign policy got to do with Muslims leaving the UK, for example, traveling thousands of miles, going to Iraq and Syria, and guess what? Killing other Muslims mm -hmm. and taking Yazidi sex slaves. Mm -hmm. What has, you know, a million people, including myself at the time, marched against the Iraq war? Why aren't there a million jihadists in the UK? Mm -hmm. But it's also wrong to say that it doesn't have something to do with the recruitment process. Mm -hmm. And in order to look at, to answer that question fully, let's look at the recruitment process. It has really three stages to it. The first stage is individuals have a set of grievances. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Every single person in the world at any given time has a grievance. Yeah. And my grievance, which may not be relevant in a week's time, to me is much, much more important than your grievance might be to you yeah. and to me that grievance seems to be at the time much more important than maybe people who can't get food in africa mm -hmm. and yet if you put things into perspective people in africa their grievances are much worse than mine if they can't get food so and these grievances can be really in three parts they can either be um, genuine grievances partial grievances and perceived grievances and the genuine grievances can be things like racism it can be you can't get a job or in the case of the lead bomber of the 7-7 uh, attacks in London said he can't, not said he can't the mayor, but said he can't the, the, the lead bomber. To always make that clear. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important because I said this somewhere uh, once before and somebody went, oh, the, lot, the mayor. I said, no, a different said he can't. There's more than one person called yeah. said he can't in the world. And, and you know, he was, he, he was educated. Mm -hmm. You know, he went to university. He was integrated into society. You know, he, he was, had a job, you know, working in his as an educator. Everything was fine. Mm -hmm. One day, he came home and said to his father that he wanted to marry his girlfriend from university, somebody who'd been courting. And the father turned around to him and said, nope, you have to marry your cousin from Pakistan, who I promised, uh, and I promised, the, you know, your aunt and uncle, that that's what you would do. And he had a problem. Nothing to do with foreign policy. And he needed a solution to the problem. Secondly, we can have the uh, partial problems, uh, grievances, which can be rooted in foreign policy because there are some things that some countries do well and every country does some things badly. 
That's the way of life. You know, the U- there have been aspects of UK foreign policy that I haven't liked, but I love the fact that the UK went into Kosovo and, and, and you know, uh, stopped the further genocide of Bosnian Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's always going to be things that an individual likes or not like. But these the partial grievances can be used and are used as, as Porsche and pull factors. Then there are perceived grievances, grievances that aren't even true. And, and I'll give you an anecdote. There was a, somebody that I do some work with who used to be a former senior recruiter for Hizbut Tahrir, an Islamist organization. He was on the train once and he saw this young woman who was wearing a hijab, so he correctly identified her as being Muslim. And she had a young child with her. She was reading a newspaper. On the front page of the newspaper, there was a story of a celebrity who was being accused and I think found guilty of um, child sexual uh, molestation, uh, 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 you know, paedophilia. Mm-hmm. He immediately recognized that she at that time, whether it be on a subconscious level, must be worried about the safety of her child who was next to her. Mm-hmm. And he approached her and he said, oh, isn't that wrong? Look how immoral the West is. Look at how immoral the whole sure. society is. Even even celebrities who, you know, people are role models, etc. and your child's never going to be safe. The only way your child's going to be safe is come and join the global Muslim Ummah gang and let's struggle for an Islamic state. Mm-hmm. She joined his battery and he's left. So these are, these are the types of grievances. And if we focus just on the grievances... We're going to be playing whack-a-mole because there's a different grievance every day. Mm-hmm. But there are some grievances we absolutely must focus on because it's the right thing to do. Racism, homophobia, all you know, people can't get jobs, all these kind of things. But that's for social cohesion and, and sort of governments and civil society. Mm-hmm. Not everybody who has a grievance becomes a jihadist. So what happens is these people with grievances, in the case of like Sadi Khan, the bomber, they find charismatic recruiters who, who give them answers to their problems. In his case, he was told by people that, go back to your father and quote this hadith saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, or say, quote this uh, um, uh, chapter or this, this verse from the Quran, and, you know, to highlight to your father that he can't force you, and that's not what you'd look for. You don't look for a cousin in a marriage. He went back to his father, quoted all these religious things, and guess what? The father turned around to him and said, you can marry your girlfriend. So all of a sudden, he had a new family, a new group of people, a new charismatic recruiter who helped him fix a problem. Mm-hmm. And what these guys do, the second part of the recruitment process, is they create this lens through which individuals view the world and find solutions to the problems. And in this lens, there are certain behavioral um, uh, 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 movements, if you like, that are created by these recruiters. There are seven stages. The first five stages, these recruiters do. And the the last two is what tips people over the edge Mm. to join and go into the third stage and join groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, etc., And guess what? ISIS and Al-Qaeda don't radicalize anybody. They just take people who are in this prism, this group, if you like, and then tip some of them over the edge. And the first thing they manage to persuade them once they've helped them with the problems is to create the concepts of otherization, that everybody in the group is the same and everybody who's not in the group is different and separate. The second thing they do is collectivization, that everybody outside of their group, and this includes other Muslims as well, are all the same. Then what they say is, the third stage is the oppression narrative, and everybody outside of the lens, the group, the gang, if you like, is oppressing them. Then we have the collective guilt, that everybody outside of that gang, again, Muslims or non-Muslims, and it could be anybody, is complicit in the oppression, 
even if they're doing it or not themselves, by the very fact that they're not in the group or they're paying the taxes, if it's wars or whatever, they are part of, they're complicit. Then we get to the the start of the dangerous ones, the, su the supremacism narrative, that everybody in this group or in that group is better than everybody else. And this is where you see, you know, groups such as Hizb Tahrir and Muslim Brotherhood and a whole range of other groups, they'll work in this space. Then groups like ISIL, ISIS, Daesh, whatever you want to call them, and by the way, it doesn't mean what, it doesn't matter what you call them, because all, <laughs> all the acronyms mean the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, etc. They then help some people going to the next two stages. The first one is self-defense, that these individuals have to retaliate for the uh, aggression and defend themselves. And then the last stage, the idea of violence, the self-internalization of violence, and that violence is the only way. Now, everybody's journey is different and bespoke, but these are the patterns that we have observed over the last 10 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to your original question on the ban, uh, I'm sorry, I sort of I wanted to just no, no, break no, down. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Break, break, break down the process because I think a lot of people give answers to questions, yes or no, and people then go, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Uh, and it's better so if you go, can preempt the why always. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so we go back to the, the, the original question on the ban. Mm -hmm. First of all, I don't agree with the ban. I think the ban is a blunt instrument. He had look. The US has to has the right to. Uh, just as Britain has, as any country has, to implement laws that they want to implement. If they feel that they want to reduce immigration or whatever, that's down to individual countries, that's their right. Who am I to say to the US, other than from a human rights perspective, what they should do and what they shouldn't do? The ban in itself is, if you look at what it's, well, first of all, there's a lot of stories coming out that Trump didn't come out with, the his administration didn't come out with the countries that, that are identified and that the that particular work was done in the, with the previous mm -hmm. administration they just didn't sign the order i don't know if that's true or not well the, sorry i i do know a little bit about this if i, I might just inter interrupt you there they it's seven countries that were mm. identified um as you couldn't get an esther if you'd been to those countries so a, right. a visa, visa right. waiver if you'd been right. to those countries you had to actually go and be interviewed for a visa if right. you travelled to one of those countries in the last two years, I believe. So those were, those seven countries were already identified mm -hmm. for this particular purpose. Yeah. So what Trump's administration probably did was take it next step, one step further, and actually do what he said he would do before he was elected, mm -hmm. and that was to ban yep. uh, ban Muslims from certain countries for until. In, in inverted commas, they can figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we know what's going on. We know the, there are experts around the people. It's not a new phenomenon. People have been dealing with this for a while now. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the ban in itself, I think, is um, a blunt instrument. Uh, I think that there are, for example, there was a Yazidi uh, Iraqi MP who was due to go to D.C. to go and collect an award um, for fighting ISIS and terrorism. And she can't go. No. There, there are Yazidi refugees. There are other Muslim refugees that genuinely need help and support on a human rights basis that can't go somewhere where hitherto they were able to go and get sanctuary and get some protection. So I think that, you know, it's a blunt instrument that focuses on a, a blanket coverage of people. So it, it has to be, uh, you know, any sort of interventions have to be much more surgical for them to be effective. The second thing is that it's not being enacted efficiently. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the way that uh, it's been implemented, 
whether it's right or wrong, has been very, very inefficient. Mm -hmm. uh, the third thing is, I think that there are people that, from the duplicitous left, I think, that have hijacked this particular uh, um, uh, policy, if you like. Uh, and I think that the final thing is that if we think that this is going to affect jihadists and undermine their narratives, mm -hmm. it's not. Going back to your original question, what this does is it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that people like Bin Laden and Aulaki were saying. Mm -hmm. Anwar Aulaki, who was, I guess, who is one of the, the major theological uh, inspirations behind the jihadists, you know, he's, he, he was killed by, by the Americans um, in North Africa. Mm -hmm. um, he actually said that there will come a time when America doesn't want Muslims. Mm -hmm. And Bin Laden said something very similar, and he said things such as there'll come a time when America doesn't want to um, uh, provide uh, interventions in the Middle East, and that's when we'll be able to take over the countries, etc., etc., etc. So it's what we are doing, or what Trump is doing, rather, is by enacting the ban that he, and the way that he has done, as a blanket and, 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 and sort of, you know, uh, and never mind the philosophical and the human rights aspects of it, you know, that, that's a different thing altogether. Mm -hmm. um, he's just giving ammunition from the partial grievances and the perceived grievances that I talked about for extremists to recruit people, not just in the Middle East, but also in the US, in the UK and around the world. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The other thing is that the overwhelming majority of people certainly that have carried out uh, jihadist attacks have not been first-generation refugees. Mm -hmm. It's been homegrown. It's been people that have either grown up as youngsters or born in Western countries. On the whole, there, are, there have been some mm. people, immigrants that have come over, but on the whole. And his ban does not stop people from the country that's providing ISIS with the n largest number of foreign fighters, and that's Tunisia. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, his ban doesn't prevent um, jihadists who have been radicalized from France, from the UK, and other Western countries. Mm -hmm. So it's not really effectively going to do what he claims and his administration claims it's going to do, it's going to do and that is to keep the US safer from jihadists. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, you said that the majority of jihadist attacks are carried out by first, second generation immigrants. Um, I, 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 either second generation or homegrown. Second generation or homegrown. Why, why is that? Why do you think that? Just, just because it's easier mm. and you can travel easily? Or? No, it's interesting. It, it's, uh, I, I, I've, I, I don't want to talk about this too much, and okay. I'll tell you why. No. We have a... I, I have, I've, jointly co-authored a report that's coming out on Monday on refugees. Okay, so read uh, the report. <laughs> it's a hundred and something pages long, and what uh. we've done is we've tracked the journey of refugees from certain connections, from certain countries, mm -hmm. to Europe and to the UK, and looks at their journeys on the way, and looks at what impact there has been on them at the at the different um, uh, stops that they've made, look at some of the policy and look at some of the parents and more so the children. Mm -hmm. I mean, so one of the things I can tell you that we've identified that there are over 82,000 vulnerable children refugees in Europe. Mm 
And that's a big number. And there's a whole range of things that are, that are sort of, uh, I mean, one of the things I can say to you is that from personal experience and sort of living, and this is not, uh, this is anecdotal as opposed to um, uh, research-based, mm-hmm. I believe that a lot of refugees or first-generation immigrants go to other countries either for safety or for refuge or to actually make a better life for themselves. Mm-hmm. Many, many immigrants are, are social economic migrants, my father was, and many, many others have, and they go to other countries to make a better life for themselves and for the children. Their children can struggle with identities. Mm-hmm. If they, I mean, I, I, I was quite fortunate. I was able to balance multiple identities because my father taught me how to balance multiple identities. You know, how to balance uh, my faith, uh, my ethnic origin, which actually is India, and then they went to Pakistan, and then Pakistani, Britishness. He taught me how to, and he allowed me the freedom to be able to express that, and also taught me. I think there's a failure amongst some immigrants, and it's and it's not an intentional failure. I think it's a lack of skills themselves to be able to help their children balance multiple identities and help them focus in on solving their problems um, from a non-Islamist perspective. I think that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think first-generation immigrants don't go usually to countries to go and blow themselves up. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so you talked about the duplicitous left. Um, mm. I wonder if we could talk a bit about what sort of what you mean by that, and also mm. the mm. Um, increasing number of times that we see uh, people on the left, particularly the far left, aligning themselves mm. with what might be perceived as Islamist narratives and, and sure. pushing Islamist talking points. Sure. I I, th- I think that. As a world, um, certainly in the West, we're facing a triple threat at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so our society is genuinely facing a triple threat. And the triple threat is um, we have the far right, we have the far left, mm-hmm. uh, and we have Islamism. Uh, and these three political ideologies, I think, are having a huge impact in the globalized world on civil society and becoming dangerous. One of the things that we've certainly seen for a long time and is that the far left have been siding up and cozying up very, very much with Islamism. Mm-hmm. And there's been a number of reasons for that. So, for example, um, we have an individual in the UK who used to be a civil servant. He... Um, he was described by a national newspaper as um, somebody who supports Osama bin Laden mm-hmm. and supported some um, attacks on British troops. He took that newspaper to court mm-hmm. and he lost. <laughs> he lost and a, high, and a high court judge ruled that he was being naive and in fact the paper was, was correct. Mm-hmm. This person was uh, is no longer a civil servant, and he's joined a number of Islamist organisations. Mm-hmm. And guess what? He's also very, very senior in Unite Against Fascism. Mm-hmm. I think there have been, there definitely has been, in Islamist infiltration into the far left because they have a lot of interesting elements, a lot of interesting beliefs. And I think the far left have undergone this political correctness and the bigotry of low expectations. Mm-hmm where they think that and believe for either political correctness or for sort of post-colonial guilt and a whole number of reasons, sometimes just anti-Western rhetoric and sometimes anti-imperialism as they're concerned, etc., etc., they see Islamists as underdogs. Mm-hmm. 
And they have, and let's not forget, Sayyid Qutb, I mentioned about Qutb importing fascism and communism. Qutb, in, in essence, the ideologue for, uh, for Islamism, was, was, was a, a Marxist. Mm. himself at one time and you know so he took a lot of the values and i used to do some training many many years ago and i used to put um, on a flip chart um seven things of six six items and say to people go mark off the ones that you're concerned about and they could be imperialism they could be poverty they could be a whole range of different things and most people you know on the left or right most people will you know have especially on the left would take most of them and then i move over the flip chart and put down um, Osama bin Laden's um, Salafi Jihad and the global uh, grievances that he has. Mm. And many of them would be there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so th there are a lot, uh, other than, you know, uh, Islamization and stuff mm. like that. But the concepts and the approach and the way they infiltrate is very, very similar to the way communism was infiltrated. I mean, Islamist infiltrators did not invent how to infiltrate societies. All they did was copy the way communism and fascism were spread. Mm. And there are a lot of similarities, and I think that political correctness, anti-imperialism, the bigotry of low expectations, allies, and effective infiltration has meant that over the last uh, few decades, the far left, not the left, but the far left, has aligned itself very close to Islamism. And, and I'll just give, give you an interesting story, anecdote. Um, I... I I, I was invited to Warwick University, um, uh, I think it was a year and a half, maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. uh, at a conference that we'd organised, Quilliam had organised, and the conference was um, a, a, a different faiths, people of different faiths and people of no faiths, having a conference and actually declaring and showing ways how we could actually stand up together for LGBT rights. Mm -hmm. And it was advertised as such. And we invited the local Warwick University LGBT societies to come along and attend. A day before, a day and a half before, they issued a statement, no platforming me personally, mm -hmm. a Muslim, a Muslim for being, I quote, Islamophobic. We were there to talk about their rights. We were there to help promote mm -hmm. these rights. People, and, and the conference was full anyway. And yet they had sided with a particularly regressive left view that has been infiltrated, that has infiltrated the NUS mm. and infiltrated uh, universities where they're afraid because some of these organizations have decided that certain Muslims are anti-Muslim, certain Muslims are something because they don't agree with them and because there's bigotry of low expectations and because we challenge fascists who happen to be Islamists, mm -hmm. they've decided that we are people who are Islamophobic, in inverted commas. I'm a Muslim, and we were there to talk about LGBT rights, and the LGBT society decided to side with the far left. And this is the danger of the infiltration. The far left within universities has created what they call safe spaces. Mm -hmm. And yet, unless, I remember at university, university used to be a place where an individual could go and explore a whole range of ideas, be radical in inverted commas, not be violent, and then come back to a centrist position. Mm. Not everybody does, but a lot of people do. <laughs> with this so-called creation of safe spaces, what they're creating are echo chambers mm. within universities where all you do is you get people of a particular viewpoint that sit around and just reinforce their, in some cases, bigoted ideas. Mm. I think this is another form of infiltration of the ideas that the far left have been bringing to consolidate and build their own capacity. And guess what? Islamists do that as well. And so do fascists.
they do it as well. So I think that the triple threat, you, you know, my, my father used to say to me when we used to have discussions when I was younger, I mean, I, I used to be a member of CND when I was at university. Mm-hmm. He used to say to me, son, you know what? If you go far enough right or you go far enough left, you end up meeting. Mm. And I think that a lot of the tactics, a lot of the views um, on a values-based, uh, 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 from a values-based perspective, uh, the far left, far right, and Islamists are the same. Mm. And civil society, and, and you know what, what I really like about the UK? If you, if you look at um, the UK, when we have far-right marches organized in the UK now, we only get like 100 people or 100, maximum 150 people that turn up to these marches. Mm-hmm. You go to marches in Europe, you get thousands. You go to marches in the US, it's a bit different. In the UK, we, and this leadership has come from the top, have named the problem that we face, and named it as Islamism, differentiated it from the faith of Islam, and are trying to tackle the problem of Islamism. Mm-hmm. We don't. We haven't seen the growth of the far right. We've seen a lot of the far left, but we haven't seen the growth of the far right as much as uh, other places have. Mm-hmm. And populism in the U.S. The debate because Obama re- has re- had refused to name the problem. People aren't stupid. You know, if if somebody says that they're doing something in the name of the faith, whether they are or not, as far as I'm concerned, because I'm part of the same faith, mm. Obama should have led with saying. This is a problem. It's called Islamism. It's different to Islam. We're going to tackle this Islam problem, Islamism, the same way that we tackle racism, homophobia, etc. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. And what what happened in the U.S. especially was the debate became about, well, Obama, you're not showing any leadership. You're not saying anything. Islam is good, or Islam is bad. Mm-hmm. All Islam is good. All Islam is bad. All Muslims are good. All Muslims are bad. And that centrist, nuanced debate is not as prevalent in the US and other countries as it is in the UK. And guess what? That's exactly what ISIS said in their magazine they want to encourage in the West. Mm. They want to get people to move out of this nuance, the grey zones, as they call it, the the nuanced debate. And I think that we as a country have been very, very fortunate. I think it's been good leadership and civil society has woken up. Mm. But we do have a problem with the far left here in the UK and around the world but we have far-right problems in parts of Europe and other parts of sort of, I guess, the US and, and other countries as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't want to keep you too long, so I just have one more question, if that's okay. Mm. Just, just about kind of um, sort of debating people versus no platforming, because you just said yeah, no, no yeah. platforming. Um, could you just give me a rundown of why you think that works, even when sometimes you're not going to win that debate in some people's sure. eyes? Because, you know, sure. for for example, there will always be, you know, someone who argues from a religious bent and someone in the audience will go, mm. yes, I think that's right, despite all this logic that's coming out of the other person. Sometimes you're not going to sure. win the argument. Sure. I, I think that, you know, what we don't want to be is countries like Saudi Arabia or countries like Russia where we stifle debate and China, perhaps, and other countries where we stifle debate and we actually don't allow, allow a free market of ideas. Our country and, and our democracies have, have developed and evolved through debates and through people actually criticizing, listening or not listening to different ideas. I think we, we've, we've started a campaign last year called the Right to Debate. And uh, that a number of universities have taken up that challenge and a number of universities have signed up to the Right to Debate. Previously, what has happened is that a number of hate preachers, a number of people 
who want to pervade things from a uh, from an Islamist perspective or a, uh, a Salafist perspective have gone to universities and indoctrinated people for half an hour or so and without being challenged. And there have been people that have been radicalized to a particular viewpoint. What we say, are saying in this campaign, and generally as well, is that if you're going to give somebody who, like Sheikh Haytham al-Haddad, whose views I totally abhor, you know, who has supported female genital mutilation, who uh, has said that apostates uh, in Islamic law in an ideal Islamic country should be killed, etc., etc., has gone to universities. We should have somebody with an equal opposite viewpoint who should be able to challenge, and we should let people make up ideas. You may not actually win an argument there and then, but if your argument, if your values are right for our society, there will be people in the audience that will give them some form, a, a seed, if you like, that may impact on some form of critical inquiry. So you don't always necessarily have to win the debate there and then, because for people to change their minds, I believe that they have to undergo critical inquiry, mm -hmm. and to undergo that critical inquiry, you have to sow certain seeds, and you have to give people certain things to think about. And I think that only through debate can we do that. Otherwise, it's indoctrination. Perfect. Thank you. So um, we'll, we'll finish there. Do you have anything that you'd like to promote anywhere where people can follow you? Anything like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, please follow us on our website. We're going to launch our new website next week on Quilliam Foundation dot org. Uh, we've got a number of projects. Uh, join the Quilliam Circle uh, if people want to be part of this movement. Um, we have something called the Quilliam Circle where people can actually get involved, get some training um, uh, and learn how to play their part within civil society and challenging this whole phenomenon um, and just you know um, you know thank you to everybody that supported us and uh, the support base is growing uh, from Muslims and non-Muslims um, we're, we're potentially very soon the US about to launch something which will be very exciting both for the US and in collaboration with one of the largest Muslim organizations in the world mm -hmm. uh, who happen to be Sufi based so watch this space and uh, get on our websites and get involved Great. Well, thanks very much for talking to me today. It's been fascinating. My pleasure. And uh, I look forward to uh, speaking to you again. Yeah. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by sharing it or also going to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Canatus News. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. That's at Canatus News on both. If you want to follow me for any reason on Twitter, I'm at Benedict Nickel One. Thanks once again for listening. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Goodbye. <laughs>